you may have noticed that there's really one topic or one subject in all the talks and in all the interviews. And that topic or subject is the nature of the mind. The Buddha said that mind is the forerunner of all things. And mind in this sense is not mind as we use it often in the West to mean intellect, but rather mind in a more expanded sense to include consciousness and all objects of consciousness, thoughts and feelings and sensations and emotions and images and sounds. Everything is included within that realm of mind. Mind is the forerunner of all things. When we look at the unfolding of our lives, and investigate the nature of that unfolding, we see that everything comes from our minds. Kinds of relationships that we're in have their origin in our minds, in our desires, in our insights, in our love, all originating in the mind. All the objects of the world, this bell, the clock, this building, bridges, cities, all arose as a vision in somebody's mind. And from that vision in the mind, it became manifest. All the ways of relating, the social structures and political structures, all had their origin in the mind. Babies have their origin in the mind. Surprise. From impulse, from desire, which leads to action, which leads to baby. <laughs> we begin to see that the whole world is a manifestation of mind. According to the Buddhist cosmology, there's a belief even that the earth is created to fulfill the karmic destiny of the beings on it. Well, perhaps, we can't help for sure, but perhaps even the earth itself is the result of mind. What is this mind that's the forerunner of all things, the unfolding of which is our lives? In the few days of this retreat and in your practice, perhaps you've gotten a glimpse of the mind as this enormously creative energy out of which all things come. The mind is this transforming, constantly transforming, constantly changing energy system. And fear arises in it, and love arises in it and attachment, and insight, and wanting, and greed, and generosity, and anger, and ill will, and boredom, and interest, and rapture, and bliss, are all conditioning factors 
this constantly transforming energy of mind which we are so then what is meditation about what is it that we're actually doing here is it to learn how to watch our bellies going up and down you know, maybe all those old cartoons of the yogis watching their belly buttons is that what we're doing or learning how to walk slowly I don't hope not (laughs) what the meditation is about what meditation is about what life is about because the two are really the same is the investigation of the nature of this mind the investigation of the energy patterns the energy configurations which make up our different experiences. To understand in the investigation of this nature of mind what it is that causes suffering in our lives and other people's lives. To understand the nature of this energy, this creative, this enormously creative for both pleasant and unpleasant, for, for joy and for suffering. The mind contains everything to investigate and understand the possibility of freedom. Meditation is the direct looking, the continual looking, the very precise and accurate looking at exactly what it is that's going on, what it is that's manifesting in each moment. When we take a look we take a look in a careful way one of the first general principles that we see and the meditation it goes from looking at the specific characteristics of experience to the more universal ones and so in the beginning we look at what it is that's happening we look at the sensations we look at the thoughts at the feelings at the breath we get a very clear and accurate picture of what it is that's happening in each moment. And from that basis of a grounding in reality, we then begin to become aware not only of the what is happening, but the how it's happening. We go from the level of the content of our experience to the process. The content in each of our experiences is different. We have different kinds of thoughts and different sensations and different emotions. But the process of our experience is exactly the same. So as we continue to investigate the nature of this mind, and we go from the content to the process, from the specific to the more universal, we begin to connect with certain principles which unite all beings. One of the principles that stands out most immediately, which should be totally obvious in our lives and often is not, is the fact that on whatever level we look, everything is constantly changing. That all experience, all conditioned phenomena 
is a process of becoming, a process of transformation. At whatever level we look, we never find anything that's static. We look at the level of mind moments, just that microscopic pulsation, energy pulsation. It's constantly vibrating and changing. We see the change in thoughts arising and passing away. Does anybody not know by now that thoughts are impermanent? You, I'm sure, have sat and watched tens of thousands of thoughts in the time that you've been here. Has any one of them stayed fixed? The emotions that we feel, you know, the sadness, the happiness, the depression, the whatever, even though at the time that we're embroiled in the emotion and lost in it and caught in it, it feels as if it's going to last forever. So when we look carefully, we see that it's changing. It doesn't last. Our relationships are constantly changing. Imagine going into a relationship. We do it very often and it causes a lot of difficulty. Going into a relationship with the idea of having the other person stay exactly the way we are when we meet them, when we fall in love. Don't change. Impossible. The nature of the relationship, it's a dance. It's changing all the time. Can we flow with that, or do we get stuck? The buildings change, the earth is going to change, the solar system is going to change, the sun is going to either collapse or explode in four and a half billion years, the galaxies are changing. From the most microscopic to the most macroscopic, it's all in a process of transformation. Does that seem clear? (laughs) It does seem so clear when we bring our rational mind to it and we actually look and see for ourselves and yet we don't live our lives having integrated that understanding. How is it that we usually relate to this experience of change? What's the usual conditioning that we have with respect to change? There's fear, there's insecurity, there's resistance, there's attachment, trying to hold on. The fear, the resistance, the attachment, the insecurity this not this unwillingness to surrender to the changes that are happening is the cause of so much suffering in the world. When we look about whether in our personal lives, in our society, on the planet, there's an enormous amount of cruelty, an enormous amount of suffering. read any newspaper or news magazine, it's, it's like a catalog 
of the suffering that's existing in the world. And it's enormous. From disease, from hunger, from violence, from warfare. It's quite amazing what we do to one another as people, you know, as a species. There's not only that kind of suffering, the suffering that comes from hatred and from fear and from ignorance and from greed, which is manifest in the world in such terrible ways, ways that cause so much suffering to so many people. When we look in our own lives, that sense of lack of wholeness, lack of completion, lack of fulfillment, Why do we come here to practice? What, what motivates us to practice? It's some urge, some sense that our lives could be more full, more total, more holy. So we begin to look at and try to understand what is the suffering in our own lives? <coughs> the fear in our minds and the anger and the longing and the loneliness and the paranoia and the boredom and the depression and all those states of mind which cut us off from that that feeling that sense of being complete the first noble truth of the Buddha's teachings is the truth of suffering And it's very important to open to the suffering that exists, to open to the suffering that exists in the world so that we don't become isolated or indifferent to actually what's going on, and open to the suffering in ourselves so that we don't become fragmented or split from the shadow part of our minds. So often... There are experiences within ourselves that are unpleasant. Certain feelings, certain pains. And our conditioning is to resist it, to close off, not to want to experience it. And so our life then becomes an effort to avoid certain feelings. How much of what we do is an effort to avoid loneliness? or an effort to avoid fear, or an effort to avoid anger. So what we have to do is to acknowledge the wholeness of ourselves. And in the practice, that's what we do. It's a practice not of creating a certain state. It's not of going on a bliss trip. It's to open, open to the totality of ourselves, to the light and to the dark to open to the suffering that's there. In the Buddhist teachings and in our own practice, it becomes so clear that that openness to the totality of ourselves must be the foundation 
for any work that we do. Because unless we're willing to be with every part of ourselves, so then our foundation is split, it's cracked. And then whatever we build is built on a cracked foundation. What is it that causes the suffering in our lives? What is it that causes the suffering in the world? It's the force of clinging and attachment. And it's because of the fear of change. Because we, we haven't opened or surrendered to the flow of changes. So the mind, in a kind of desperation, tries to cling and hold on, become attached. And this attachment is the cause of suffering. And when we try to hold on to that which is changing, do you see the futility of that? Of trying to fix something which in its nature is changing and being transformed. This tremendous tension, tremendous conflict. What is it that we get attached to? What what, what are the big ones that we hold on to? And it's so universal. We share, we share these dynamics of the mind so completely together. We get attached to sense pleasures. Sense pleasures are nice. You know, pleasant sights and sounds and nice sensations in the body and pleasant thoughts and emotions, pleasant situations. And the problem is not in the pleasures, the sense pleasures themselves. There's no problem in that. Part of being a human is to be open to the pleasant. But what happens is that we experience something that's pleasant, and instead of understanding that it's part of the passing shower, that it also is impermanent, the mind has the tendency to grasp onto it, to want it to stay. And we suffer when it leaves. We get attached to our bodies. Especially in Western culture, there's such a premium placed on staying youthful and strong. And looking at the magazine ads, it's so out of touch with reality. And we're continually fed. You know, that's how it's supposed to be. I must, again, tell you of this one advertisement, which I love so much. It's for a Salem, Salem cigarettes. And there's this handsome man and beautiful woman standing in front of a Hawaiian waterfall. You know, and everything is totally beautiful. And they're beautiful and their relationship is beautiful. And they're smoking the Salem's, and the, the caption is, I don't let anything stand in the way of my pleasure. <laughs> and it's like, that's sort of what we grow up with. You know, that that's, the, that's where happiness is to be found. And that somehow if we could only hold on to this perfection of youth and beauty and whatever, then we would be happy. 
It's ridiculous. The only alternative to getting old is dying young. (laughs) And the more we hold on to trying to maintain, you know, how we are when we're 20, when we're 50 or 60 or 70, is the cause of suffering. This attachment to the body, not recognizing the natural unfolding of the bodily process of aging. The wanting mind, that attachment to something outside of ourselves, What is it that we want? What is it that would make us happy? If you could have anything, some, some, the Buddha came down, you know, and said, anything you want, you can have. But it has to make you totally happy. What could we possibly want? We could want another sight, another sound, another smell, another taste, another sensation, another idea. What else is there? All our experience comes down to that. It comes down to seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, and feeling. We have all of that already. Our experience is complete already. And it's the wanting, it's the reaching out, thinking that somehow if we get one more sight or one more sound or one more sensation or one more thought, that will do it for us. Attachment to desire, attachment to wanting, attachment to pleasure, attachment to the body causes suffering in our lives, prevents that sense of completion, prevents that that ability to settle back into the wholeness of each moment which we already have all the time. But it's the wanting and reaching out which prevents us from seeing it. There's another kind of attachment which we have. And that's the attachment, and it's a very divisive one, causes tremendous conflict and suffering interpersonally, in the world. It's the attachment we have to opinions, to our ideas about things. We all have so many opinions and viewpoints. And the problem is not in the opinion or viewpoint, but in our attachment to it, as if somehow we know how things are. And the we can be us personally, it can be a group of people, it can be a government. There's one line from the third Zen patriarch, where he says, do not seek the truth, only cease to cherish opinions. Doesn't mean not having opinions, because we we exchange our views and, and it's fruitful. But when we cling to them, when we cherish them, when we identify with them, then we get into conflict.
take a look in your lives when you're in a place of conflict with other people how much of that struggle has to do with attachment to a viewpoint an attachment to an opinion very strongly conditioned and it's extremely uh, very divisive and it's not respectful it's not respectful of other people because each of us reflect our own unique conditioning and it's as if we each have our own window on reality. We each see it in a particular way unique to ourselves. And we understand that and then we can appreciate everybody else's viewpoint, everybody else's perspective. We can learn from that. We have to let go of our attachment to our own. There's another kind of attachment that plays particularly with meditators. It's it's sort of an occupational hazard. It's important to recognize. And Trinpa Rinpoche phrased it very well. He called it spiritual materialism. And that is when somehow we use our practice to reinforce the sense of ego, the sense of self. We do that when we cling to the practice, when we cling to the technique. The best way, the quickest way, the highest way, the diamond vehicle, the, the whatever. You know, all, all techniques of practice are simply fingers pointing at the moon. And any attitude which grasps at the finger misses the point. All the teachings are geared to looking at the nature of the mind. It's looking at the moon, not not holding on to the finger. So to really look at the ways in which we become attached to our way of practice. It's very limiting. The writer by the name of Wei Wu Wei, who's written many very insightful and clever books. He said, disciples and devotees, what are most of them doing? Worshipping the teapot instead of drinking the tea. Worshipping the teapot is pointless. Everything's changing all the time. On whatever level we look, things are changing. See the change, we react to it out of insecurity, out of fear, out of resistance. So we get attached. We get attached to sense pleasures, we get attached to opinions, we get attached to our practice. The deepest attachment, the one that's the most deeply conditioned, the root of all the others, and the one that we're most looking at in our practice is the attachment we have to the concept of self. This concept of I, of me, of mine is so strong in the mind. Our lives revolve about this idea of self.
What is the self? The self is a constellation of experience. And we have a certain group or constellation of experiences, of thoughts and emotions and sensations and sounds and sights. We have this grouping of experiences and we put it all together and we see the pattern and call that Joseph. That's that's me. But when we look carefully, we see that that self, that Joseph, is just an abstraction. It's a concept made from putting all the experiences together in a particular pattern. Does anybody not know the constellation Orion? Does everybody know what it looks like? You know, the warrior up there in the sky. The constellation Orion. Do you know it? Do you know the Big Dipper? Yeah. Anybody not know what the Big Dipper looks like? Okay. What's the Big Dipper? Is there really a Big Dipper up in the sky? <laughs> you know, what is it? It's a constellation of stars. That is, it's a group of stars in a certain relationship and in a certain pattern that looks like a dipper. And when we see the constellation, we see that as separate from all the other stars in the sky. And it's like the mind picks out the Big Dipper. There's no Dipper. (laughs) There are stars in the sky. And actually those stars are not separate from all the other stars no more separate than any of the other stars in the sky. But we're so used to seeing that pattern. Go outside tonight, and if the constellation is up, look up at it and see if it's possible for you not to see the Big Dipper. Very hard. It's so conditioned in our minds, that particular pattern, that it's very hard not to see the pattern, to see it simply as stars in the sky. You can imagine if it's difficult not to see the Big Dipper, 
very difficult to see the not-self. But self is the same as Big Dipper. Joseph is exactly the same as Big Dipper. Joseph is just a collection of stars, a collection of experiences, which just like those stars are also constantly changing every moment. But there's a certain pattern. Just like the Big Dipper pattern is a Joseph pattern. And we get so identified with the pattern that we take Joseph to be real. Just as we take Big Dipper to be real. And just as there's no Big Dipper in the sky, there's no Joseph here. It's just a constellation of changing experiences. Difficult. but so important to begin to get past the concept we have of ourselves, the image we have of ourselves, the abstraction of self, of some separate entity, to drop into the actual experience of being as changing phenomena, totally interrelated with everything about it, with the whole universe not separate. There's another way to relate to the process of change other than attachment. When we look, when we investigate the nature of our minds, the nature of the world, and see that everything's changing, we also see the conditioning to get attached to things, to hold on to security and see that it doesn't work. If it worked, it would be fine, but it doesn't. It creates more suffering, more conflict, more separation. What's the alternative then in the face of this constant change? What's the alternative to attachment? What's the alternative to holding on? The alternative is letting go, surrendering becoming one with the flow of changes rather than blocking it or resisting it or trying to make it secure. To surrender to the insecurity. To surrender to the transformation. It's a very uh, strong image <coughs> to describe this whole process of growing insight. the image of somebody falling out of a plane. And at first realizing that he doesn't have a parachute. Just imagine yourself falling out of a plane and you think you have a parachute and then you realize you don't. What would you feel? Panic. All right, probably. Panic, fear. Okay, falling out of the plane, no parachute. Go through that reaction. You fall down a little way, and then you realize that there's no ground. What happens? Relax. 
most of us are in that in-between stage. We've fallen out of the plane and we realize there's no parachute, but we haven't quite yet realized there's no ground. There's no ground. It's a big relief. And it's really what we're doing in this, in this process of observation. The falling, the image of falling, is just that sense of constant change. The, to, to experience our, this, this, this phenomena is just constantly moving and changing and transforming. And when we first get glimpses of that, we panic. We try to hold on. We try to make something secure. We try to make something stable. And we go through that to a place of surrender, to a place of letting go. A skillful way of relating to the truth of change, to the truth of impermanence, is that of openness, of acceptance. We can relax into the flow, relax into the change become one with the flow of changing phenomena. That's what we're doing in the practice. First it's learning to see the change more and more clearly, more and more microscopically, and going with it, softening into it, relaxing into it. Any questions? There's death and rebirth, and death and rebirth. It's a, it's. There is one more part to that image, though, which I should mention, I guess. There's no ground in the sense that you never hit a brick wall. Everything is constantly changing, and that flow continues to go on, even at the moment of death. It's consciousness arising and death consciousness arising, rebirth consciousness coming next. So it's that continual flow. That's like, that's like falling through the air. Right? But after a while, just imagine yourself falling and you've come to the realization that you don't have a parachute and that there's no ground, so you're relaxed in it. There's no tension in that. But after a few eons of time of falling, you might get tired of the process. You know, falling, falling, falling. <laughs> so the next step in that, the first step is, you know, the first stage is the panic, and the second stage is the surrender. And the third stage, you could call it the dissolving. Just when you get tired of the falling, the continually endless falling, in one Zen saying, it says, the end which is endless 
is like a snowflake dissolving into the pure air. And we're no longer attached to this sense of self, separate identity, which is an illusion anyway, then dissolving into the pure air. But don't worry about dissolving. Sometimes people hear that and they get a little panicky. We're around for as long as we want to be around. Were those two different questions? What's the difference? tend to think that things refer back to someone. Thoughts refer back to the being having them. And emotions refer back to the being having them. And sensations refer back. And one of the great discoveries, a a radically transforming discovery, which comes from our own investigation, and it's the only way it will ever come, is to see that things don't refer back to anything, but rather everything is exactly what it is. There's one short teaching of the Buddha, and there's a whole story behind how he gave the teaching, but it's one verse which, if, if understood, is so enlightening. He said, in the scene, that is with the eyes, there is just what is seen. And in the heard, there is just what is heard. And in the sensed, that is smell and taste and touch, there is just what is sensed. And in the thought, there is just what is thought. You see how simple it is? 
everything is just what it is. In the seen, there is just what is seen, and in the heard, there is just what is heard, and in the thought, there is just what is thought. But what we do, because we like to improve upon things, is there's a thought, and we add to the fact of just a thought the concept, my thought, my thought, my feeling, my sensation, my husband, my wife, my whatever. That my is always totally extra. We add that. You could think of practice, again in another way, of how we begin the sense of self of referring everything back to the sense of I, mine. And what we're doing in the practice is to go from this to that. Instead of everything referring back to a sense of I, we begin to see everything being just what it is. You have to be a little careful because when we're referring everything back to an I, a lot of people think that the idea of practice is to make that very cosmic. You know, make it really big. It doesn't matter how big and how cosmic you make it, if it's referring back to a sense of self, it's still caught. And it doesn't matter how small the mind is, it can be totally ordinary mind. And if we just get the glimpse of that, that's where the freedom is. Mix it up. You take all the factors of enlightenment, which are mindfulness and investigation and energy and rapture and calm and concentration and equanimity. As those factors get cultivated and matured, out of that, out of that recipe, that opening to the unconditioned happens. It's not that wrong view is permanent and lurking. Right? It's not it's not like there's this wrong view demon. Right? Just as mindfulness is not permanent. Right? It's always in each moment are the conditions there for wrong view to be born. So it's not it's not kind of squashing down the demon. It's just as mindfulness is present there's no ground for wrong view to grow out of. from the, the dual interplay of ignorance and desire. Ignorance of the fact that everything's changing and so that attachment doesn't make sense. And because of that, that ignorance feeds the desire, feeds the wanting. As we get caught in the desire, the ignorance gets stronger and so we just we circle around those two. 
And that's why it's awareness or mindfulness or wisdom which cuts that, cuts that chain. When we see, and over and over again, the practice is a refinement, a, a deepening of the experience of the momentariness, the insubstantiality of phenomena, as we experience that more and more deeply, automatically the attachment falls away. Because we see that it's... It's like going to a river, you know, and trying to hold on to, to a piece of the river. We don't do that. And we're the same thing. We're, this is a river of experience. You mentioned about the thoughts and not referring back to an eye, and I got that. Uh, something else just occurred to me. I just want to check this out. Movement occurs. There are, uh, it, it's apparent to me, many, many individual movements. Are we saying then that no one movement refers to the next movement that's sufficient in and of itself. Okay. And if it is sufficient in and of itself, then there is no movement. There's only the um, uh, millions of uh, uh, beginnings, middle, and end. And then the next beginning, middle, and end, and the next beginning, middle, and end, there's, there's no movement. Now, okay. There are all those little millions, beginning, middle, and ends. And also, each moment conditions the moment which comes after. So that each moment is not in isolation from the next moment's experience. Moments condition one another. And that's why our lives are unfolding according to certain laws. It's not happening chaotically or randomly. There's a law of conditioning happening. You plant an apple seed, you don't get a mango. It's a constant state of becoming. There's nothing, there's nothing in the apple which was in the seed. The seed underwent a process of transformation, of germinating, sprouting, becoming a tree and fruit. And yet it, it follows a law. It's not, it's not chaotic. So you plant an apple seed and you get an apple. Did you hear the question in the back? That came to an appreciation and some some understanding of sort of the idea of selflessness, but that the idea of reincarnation seems in contradiction to that. If there's no self, who gets reborn? What no self means is that there's no one behind the changing process to whom it refers, but rather who we are is the changing process. Right. And so what we take to be ourselves, there's no, there's no unchanging entity to whom it's all referring back to, but rather as we explore our lives, we see that 
we are a process of change. This process of change simply continues. If the, what's keeping it going, what's keeping the process of change going is the force, the energy of desire, of wanting. That's the, that's the fuel. If in the dying moment there's fuel, if there's still a force of wanting, of grasping, death consciousness will lead to rebirth consciousness. But it's the same process of change. There's no one who's going from this life to that life. Just as within this life, there's no one who goes from being five to being 30. But rather, it's a process of becoming. Is that clear to you? very important to understand the difference between commitment and attachment. It's often those two get confused. Because things are changing, attachment to making something stay doesn't make sense and causes a lot of conflict. Commitment is to an unfolding direction of energy. And so we can be committed to a relationship, we can be committed to our meditation practice. It's the difference between coming into the hall with attachment to having a certain experience happen. You know, if you come into the hall and you are attached to the idea that it's going to be a wonderful, blissful sitting, to the degree that you're attached to that and that it's not happening in that way, you'll suffer you'll be in conflict. And yet there can be a commitment to your practice which keeps you coming back. You know, you sit and you walk and you sit and you walk and you're committed to the direction of your energy in a particular way. But that's not a holding on to a particular state. There's no attachment in that. In the same way in a relationship, you can be committed to another person for a variety of reasons. And People get into relationships for many reasons. It would be possible to undertake a relationship with commitment without attachment. And so that your energy is to be together and that being together could encompass all the changes that you go through. And it's a much freer way because then there's not a dependence on it being a certain way, on it staying a certain way which it doesn't anyway. Is that clear to you? Okay, you know, I could do this for hours, but... (laughs)
I think I'd like to close with a reading a poem. Just, just a reminder before before I read this. As you practice, as you get up and you walk and you come back and sit, see if you can drop into the experience as it is without adding to it the concept of mind. So, for example, when you're walking, and you're walking very carefully, just feeling the sensations of movement, and you can do it very microscopically. See, when we, when we don't look closely, my arm is moving. But there's no arm. What, what the experience is of, of a thousand different sensations just arising and changing and passing. And on that level, there's no arm. Right? There's just the sensations changing. So just play with, if you can, dropping into that level of experience. It takes a close attention. Okay. This is a poem by Pablo Neruda, famous poet from Chile, called Keeping Quiet. Now we will count to twelve, and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, Let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for one second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment. Without rush, without engines, we would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm the whales, and the man gathering salt would look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. If we were not so single-minded, about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count up to twelve, and you keep quiet, and I will go.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.